For first-time horse owners and new riders, finding the information and support you need can be challenging. Luckily, Equine Network has partnered with Sentinel and Absorbine to bring you MyNewHorse.com as your one-stop shop for easy-to-understand horse care information and guidance. Visit MyNewHorse.com. You're listening to Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. (laughs) Welcome to Sleep Stories for Equestrians. I'm your host, Ashley Winch. We're so happy you're here to relax and unwind. If you fall asleep and miss the story, we will recap it at the beginning of the next episode. We've also selected and edited these stories for ultimate relaxation, removing any stressful bits without affecting the story's integrity, so you can focus on drifting off to sleep. With that, let's settle down and prepare for our story. The gates are closed, the horses sleep, the day's work done, the chores complete. Now let us rest, our bodies and minds, drift off to sleep, and close your eyes. It's time for us to turn down for the night. Now let's breathe in, breathe out, and turn off the light. One more time, breathe out, breathe in. Now let us begin. In our previous episode, the BBs were able to make their way back to their ranch, and luckily, their dog found them there as well. Let's find out what's happening with Misty and her foal. Chapter 17 Sawdust and Sadness Saturday News briefs from around the world were coming over the radio like flack. India agrees to a conference with Pakistan. African leaders at the United Nations are exploring the common market. Russia accuses the United States of warmongering. Jordan and Israel again at loggerheads over the River Jordan. England's Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip return in triumph from Australia and New Zealand. The newscaster paused and took a breath, as if all this were far away and only a prelude to the real news. His tone became neighborly now and concerned. And here on the home front, the tiny flooded island of Shinkatig has aroused the sympathy of the whole nation. The islanders, whose livelihood depends on chicken and seafood and ponies, have suffered a savage blow to all three industries. Today's report indicates that only a remnant of the wild pony herds on Assateague Island have survived. These are the ponies that made Shinkatigue famous for the annual roundup and pony penning celebration, and that have brought visitors by the thousands. 
How seriously this loss will affect the tourist industry can only be estimated. Yet, the Shinkatigers are showing indomitable courage. With bulldozers and scoop shovels, they are pushing tons of sand off streets, lawns, out of cellars, and back into the channel. Cleanup crews are making bonfires of rubble and debris. Oh, flash news. Two notes were just handed to me. One says Misty, the movie star pony, has been evacuated from her owner's kitchen to an animal hospital in Pocomoke, Maryland, where her coat is expected any moment. The other says the second army at Fort Belvoir is flying in helicopters within the hour to remove debris from Shinkatigue and Assateague. At Pony Ranch, Grandpa snapped off the radio in mid-sentence. I got to go now, he said in a tone of finality. Them's my orders. He kissed his family goodbye as solemnly as if he were going away on a long journey and might never return. No, son, he shook his head in answer to Paul's asking look. No, you're needed here today to work on Misty's stall. Somebody's gotta get it ready for her homecoming. Besides, Grandma and Maureen can't lift that wet rug out on the line by themselves. They need an able-bodied man. Grandpa's eyes said, less talk the better. And his voice said, each copter has a crew of four stout army men, and there's Tom Reed and Henry Leonard to help me. Grandma's eyes were bright with unshed tears. Quickly, she went to the cupboard and took out a small brown sack. I was saving these peppermints for Misty's baby, but here, Clarence, you take them for extra strength she whispered, when things are rough. Paul and Maureen were soon so busy with the preparations for Misty's return that they forgot all about Grandpa. The phone might ring any minute long distance with big news from Pocomoke, and if it did, the made-over chicken coop had to be dry and snug and warm and waiting. The day was spent in a fever of activity. At first, they tackled the heavy, sodden straw with enthusiasm. They were used to cleaning Misty's stall every morning before breakfast. It only took a few minutes, fifteen at most. But now, clumps of seaweed made the bedding slithery as soup and heavy as lead. With fork and shovel, they pitched and tossed for an hour. Each wheelbarrow full seemed heavier than the last, until finally it took both of them, one at each handle, to push it and dump the muck into the woods. Skipper found an old pulpy potato and asked Paul and Maureen to play ball, but they were too busy and too tired. 
At morning's end, the floor of the shed was emptied of wet bedding, but what remained was a churned-up, slimy mass of mud. Maureen leaned against the wall, rubbing an arm across her face. How are we ever going to get it dry, she said, bursting into tears. Paul felt defeated too, and his head and body ached. What we need, he groaned, is a thousand million blotters. But where? Suddenly, his face lighted in inspiration. Sawdust, he cried. That's what we need. He ran sloshing toward the road, calling back over his shoulder. You wait, I'm going to go see Mr. Hancock. Mr. Hancock was a longtime friend. He was a woodcarver and had given work to Paul and Maureen when they were earning money to buy Misty's mother. Often, for fifty cents apiece, they had swept his shop clean of sawdust and shavings. By the time Maureen had finished her cry and wiped away her tears, Paul and Mr. Hancock were driving into the yard in his newly painted truck. She gaped in astonishment as she watched them unload a bushel basket after bushel basket of sawdust at the door of the stall. Ain't near enough, Mr. Hancock said as he helped dump the yellow sawdust on the floor and saw it turn dark and wet in seconds. Tell you what, he said, noticing Maureen's tear-streaked face. It's eating time now, and we all got to eat regardless. That'll give this stuff time to absorb all the wet it's going to. Then... We've got to heave it all out, and I'll bring more sawdust and chips, too. Lucky thing I had it stored high and dry in my barn loft. Paul piled the empty baskets into Mr. Hancock's truck. Then, he and Maureen headed warily toward the house. Maureen was trying not to cry. See what I see? Paul pointed to the back stoop. And there was Grandma milking the nanny goat, who was tied to the stair railing. Shh, Grandma warned as the children came up. Don't frighten her. This ain't easy, but I got almost enough to make us a nice pot of cocoa. All during lunch, Grandma kept a stream of conversation to cheer them. Children, she said brightly. A she-goat was exactly what we needed, if not for Misty, then for us. Isn't this cocoa delicious? Paul and Maureen nodded, too tired for words. You can each have two cups, and all the biscuits you can eat with gooseberry jam. I figure the starving people of the world would think this is a Thanksgiving feast, don't you? Yes, Grandma. And since you still gotta work on Misty's stall, you don't need to hang my rug outside today. I got all the windows open in here and there's a good breeze blowing in. Thank you, Grandma, 
now. You two perten up. Everything's going to be better this afternoon. Life is like a teeter-totter. Heartbreak, happiness. Happiness, heartbreak. You'll see. Everything will be better this afternoon. Grandma was right. By the time the wet sawdust was shoveled out, Mr. Hancock was back again with a small tow wagon hooked onto his car. I've got a big surprise for you, he chuckled. The road people was putting down some ground-up oyster shells, and I got them to fill up my wagon plumb full. With them shells first, and the shavings on top of that, you'll have the driest stable this side of Doc Finney's. The rest of the afternoon flew by in a fury of work. Paul dumped the oyster shells onto the floor. Maureen raked them even. Then came layer on layer of chips and shavings. For a final touch, they took a bale of straw and cut it up, a sheaf at a time, into short wisps. Why can't we just shake it airy? Maureen asked. My fingers ache. Why do I have to cut it? Do you want his pipe stem legs getting all tangled up and throwing him down? Of course not. When you tell me why, I don't mind doing it. But Paul, how do you know it's going to be a he? I don't, silly. People always say he when they don't know. Well, I say she. With the work done, Paul flopped down on the straw and lay there quite still. Are you sick? Maureen asked in fright. No. Then what are you doing? I'm a newborn colt, and I'm testing to see if there are any drafts. Doc Finney says I can't stand them. I feel the wind coming in through the siding. I feel it blowing in my hair. That's easy to fix. Paul got up and plastered the cracks with straw and mud. Meanwhile, Maureen stripped some pine branches and scattered the needles lightly for fragrance. By twilight, any horsemaster would have tacked a blue ribbon on the old chicken coop barn. Maureen called Grandma to come out and inspect. You've got to see, Grandma. It's beautiful. Misty's going to be the happiest mother in the world. Grandma, holding her sweater tight around her neck, stepped inside the snug shelter. She beamed her approval. I declare to goodness, I'd like to move in myself. Just wait till your grandpa sees this. Likely, he'll do a hop dance for joy. But that night, grandpa never even looked at Misty's stall. It was dark when he came home. Without a word, he made his way toward the kitchen table and sat down heavily. His face seemed made of clay, gray and pinched and old. Without removing his jacket, he sat there 
hands folded, just staring at the floor. The noisy clock was no respecter of grief. Each stroke of the hammer thudded like a heartbeat. The seconds and minutes ticked on. Paul and Maureen sat very still, saying nothing, doing nothing, just waiting. Your grandpa's had a mill day, Grandma whispered at last. He's all cut to pieces. Just let him be. It was as if the gentle words had broken a dike. The old man hid his face in his arms and wept. Don't be ashamed to cry, Clarence. Let the tears out if they want to come. Grandma put her clean, scrubbed hand on the gnarled, mud-crusted ones. King David in the Bible was a strong man, and he wept copiously. Her voice went on softly. In my Sunday school class just two weeks ago, I gave the story of King David. There was just one verse that said, The king covered his face and wept just like you, Clarence. Neither Paul nor Maureen made a sound. They were too stunned. They watched the heaving shoulders in silence. Grandpa, who had always seemed so strong and indestructible, now looked little and feeble and old. When his sobs quieted, he wiped his eyes and slowly looked up. I ain't fit to talk to nobody, he said, his voice no more than a breath. Oh, oh, Grandpa, Maureen cried, your voice. It's gone. You ain't Bellerin. And she ran to him and flung her arms about him, sobbing hysterically. There, there, child, don't you cry too. I'm plumb shame to break down, and we're lots luckier than most folks, he smiled weakly. We got our house, and each other, and... And Misty, Paul said earnestly. And Misty, Grandpa nodded. It's just... He swallowed hard and his hands gripped the table until his knuckles showed white through the dirt. It's just, he repeated, We're all so tired from the day's work, and all the army men and us shinkatigers all look the same, with our sunburned faces and white foreheads, and we were all alike in our sadness. Then, the preacher, he came by, and said a prayer. Neither tide nor wind nor rain nor flight of time can erase the glory of the memories of Shinkati. Everyone in the little kitchen let out a deep sigh as if the preacher's words were right and good. After a moment, Grandpa got up from the table and put his arm around Grandma. Now you see, Itty, why I had to smuggle you home. 
I needed you for comfort. Grandma wiped her spectacles with her apron. Must be the steam in the room, she said. Grandpa had one more thing to say. For just this once in my life, I wished I was a waterman instead of a hossman. Paul glanced around in sudden terror. It was as if a cold blade of fear had struck him. His eyes sought Maureen's. They were very dark and wide and asking, Was Misty all right? Chapter 18 Within the Folding Box On the same day that Grandpa was out airlifting debris and Paul and Maureen were drying out Misty's stall, Misty herself had felt strangely unhappy. She had a freshly made bed in a snug stable, and she couldn't have been lonely for she was never without company. If she so much as scratched an ear with a hind hoof, young David Finney tried to do it for her. If she leapt at her hay, he tore handfuls out of the manger and presented it joyously to her. If she lay down, he tried to help her get comfortable. And there were newspaper men coming and going, taking pictures of her in the stall, out of the stall, with David, without David. One caught Misty pulling the ponytail of a lady reporter. There was plenty of laughter and a constant flow of visitors. But in spite of all the attention she was getting, Misty felt discontented and homesick. She was accustomed to the cries of seabirds and the tang of the salt air and the tidal rhythm of the sea. And she was accustomed to going in and out of her stall to the old tin bathtub that was her watering trough. But here, everything was brought to her. She kept shaking her head nervously and stamping in impatience. Occasionally, she let out a low cry of distress, which brought David and Dr. Finney on the run, but they could not comfort her. She yawned right in their faces as much as to say, Go away. I miss my own home place and my own children and my own marsh grass. In all the long day, there was only one creature who seemed to sense her plight. It was Trinetta, the trotter in the next stall. The two mares struck up a friendly attachment, and when they weren't interrupted by callers, they did a lot of neighborly visiting. If Misty paced back and forth, Trinetta paced alongside in her own stall making soothing, snorting sounds. The newsmen spoke of her as Misty's lady-in-waiting, and some took pictures of the two, nose to nose. When night came on, Trinita was out to pasture, and Misty's sudden loneliness was almost beyond bearing. 
She shied at eerie shadows hulking across her stall, and her ear caught spooky rustling sounds. Filled with uneasiness, she began pacing again, not knowing that the shadows came from a lantern flame flickering as the wind stirred it, not knowing that the rustling sounds were made by Doc Finney tiptoeing into the next stall, carefully setting down his bag of instruments and stealthily opening up his own sleeping roll. When at last there was quiet, Misty lay down, trying to get comfortable, but she was even more uncomfortable. Hastily, she got up and tried sleep standing, shifting her weight from one foot to the other. Suddenly, she wanted to get out, to be free, to hightail it for home. She neighed in desperation. She pawed and scraped at the floor, then banged her hoof against the door. Trinada came flying in at once, whinnying her concern. Trying to help, she worked on the catch to the door, but it was padlocked. She thrust her head inside, reaching over Misty's shoulder as much to say, There, 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 there. It will all be over soon. Doc Finney watched, fascinated as the four-footed nurse quickly calmed her patient. It'll probably be a long time yet, he told himself. Nine chances out of ten she'll fall in the dark watches of the night. I'd better get some sleep while I can. He was aware that many of his friends would pity him tonight, shaking their heads over the hard life of a veterinarian. But at this moment, he would not trade jobs for any other in the world. Each birth was a different kind of miracle. Sighing in satisfaction, he slid down into his sleeping bag and settled himself for a long wait. The seconds wore on, and the minutes and the slow hours. He grew drowsy and dozed, and he woke to check on Misty and dozed again. Toward morning, his sleep was fitful, and he dreamed that Misty was a tree with ripening fruit, just one golden pear. He dreamed that the stem of the fruit was growing weak and that it was the moment of ripe perfection. A flush of light in the northeast brought him sharply awake. He peered through the siding and saw Misty lying down, and he saw wee four hoofs breaking through the silken birth bag, the head resting upon them then quickly came to the slender body with the hind legs tucked under. He froze in wonder at the tiny filly lying there, complete and whole in the straw. It gave one gulping gasp for air, and then its sides began rising and falling as regularly as the ticking of a clock. 
Alarmed by the gasping sound, Misty scrambled to her feet and turned to look at the new little creature, and the cord joining them broke apart like the pear from the tree. Motionless, she watched the spidery legs thrashing about in the straw. Her foal was struggling to get up, and then it was halfway up, nearly standing. Suddenly, Misty was all motherliness. She sniffed at the shivering wet thing, and some warning impulse told her to protect it from the chills. Timidly at first, she began to mop it dry with her tongue. Then, as her confidence grew, she scrubbed in great rhythmic sweeps. Lick, lick. More vigorously all the time. The moments stretched out, and still the cleaning and currying went on. Doc Finney sighed in relief. Now the miracle was complete. Misty had accepted her foal. He stepped over the unneeded bag of instruments and picked up a box of salt and a towel. Then, Talking softly all the while, he unlocked Misty's door and went inside. Good girl, Misty. Move over. There now. You had an easy time. With a practiced hand, he sprinkled salt on the filly's coat, and the licking began all over again. That's right, Misty. You work on your baby he said, unfolding the towel, and I'll rub you down. Then I'll make you a nice warm gruel. Why, you're not even sweating, but we can't take any chances. Misty scarcely felt Dr. Finney's hands. She was nudging the foal with her nose, urging it up again so she could scrub the other side. The little creature wanted to stand. Desperately, it thrust its forelegs forward. They skidded and splayed into an inverted V like a schoolboy's compass. There, it was standing, swaying to and fro as if caught in a wind. Smiling, Doc Finney had stopped his rubbing. He saw that all was well. Reluctantly, he left the stall. Minutes later, he was on the telephone. Young David stood behind him, listening in amazement and disgust. How could grown-ups be so calm, as if they'd just come in from repairing a fence or pulling weeds? He wanted to do handsprings, cartwheels, and stand on his head. But there was his father's voice again, sounding plain and every day. Yes, Paul, she delivered at dawn. A mare colt, sound as a dollar. Yes, I'm making Misty a warm mash, just waiting for it to cool a bit. No, Paul, she's fine. Everything was normal. No, don't bring the nanny goat. 
Misty's a fine mother. Don't see why not by mid-afternoon anyway. Doc Finney put the receiver in place, stretching and yawning. Dad, why don't you see why not? David asked. Why can't they take Misty and her foal home today? Can I go out and see her now? David pleaded. No, son, Doc Finney replied. Then he saw how flushed the young face got and the tears were brimming. Of course you can go later. Just give them an hour or so alone. I'm so glad that Stormy's finally joined us in this story and hope that you're able to slip into a sound slumber. Thank you for joining us on Sleep Stories for Equestrians. Allow this gentle music to lull you to sleep.
Thank you. 